If you enjoy the channel and our video content and would like to support us, you can do this in a couple of ways. You can sign up to our Patreon site which is a monthly subscription to one of our four tiers, each giving you something different from early access interviews up to exclusive unseen footage. There's also the option of a one-off donation via PayPal which allows you the option to donate an amount of your choice. Both options really help to keep this channel going and to continue putting out regular content for you good folk. So please take a look at aircrewinterview.tv forward slash donate and I thank you in advance. Thank you and enjoy. So Liz, when did you first become interested in aviation? So, um, I, well, I, I didn't really have an aviation background as a kid. Um, I mean, apart from going to the odd air show back home in Northern Ireland. Um, but I wanted to join the RAF um, whenever I, well, my brother actually joined the army. And whenever he went up to join the army uh, at a place called Palace Barracks back home in Northern Ireland, uh, there was a magazine on the table uh, in the careers office. And um, it had a guy hanging out the side of a helicopter on what I thought was a rope at the time. So I asked the guy in uniform, um, what's this job, this guy on the rope? And he said, it's not actually a rope, it's a, it's a wire and the job's helicopter recruitment. And that was me. I was just sold on it. And I didn't really know much about the job at the time. I was just like, that looks wicked. It looks like the best job in the world. And that's what I want to do. So it wasn't really a love of aviation that dragged me into the raft. It was just that picture on the magazine. <laughs> that's great. So when did you actually join the, the Royal Air Force, Liz? So I joined on my 19th birthday. Um, all this kind of stuff with my brother joined the army. He was 18 and I was only 17. Um, and I went up with him. So, yeah, it took me about a year to do all the kind of pre-interviews over to RAF College Cranwell for a lot of the aptitude tests and that kind of thing and party medicals and all the jazz. And then, yeah, I, I finally attested on my 19th birthday. Wow. That must have been yeah. a get in day. Yeah, it was pretty young. And a lot of my mates all went to university the same week. So because I joined in the September. So, you know, finished A-levels, got A-level results in the August. And about three weeks later, was standing, you know, in a uniform attesting to, you know, serve Queen and Country. So, yeah, it was a bit of a baptism of fire at the deep end. But never look back if it could have anything in the world right now I'd have a rewind button and go back to that day <laughs> and obviously your your first uh, point was you, you saw that picture and you wanted to be a crewman did you like when you were going through your training did you have to go through specific tests or anything or did, did they choose you where you wanted to go or could you say like right I want to go this and we're going to test you for this how did that work so the aptitude test that they do at Cromwell they test for uh, all air, air crew pilot roles and air traffic as well, actually. Um, and there might be a, a few other trades that kind of have to do after tests. But essentially, everyone goes through the same tests. And you get the and the tests range from quick reaction things where, you know, the screen will flash blue and you have to press the blue button, remembering sequences of numbers, some more piloty type stuff, like keep the ball in the middle and then, you know, move the aircraft to this heading at the same time, that kind of thing. So you do all these aptitude tests, everyone together. And and then you kind of get a readout at the end of what your score is. And different scores, depending on, on different elements of the tests, will, will sort of put you in a different bracket for each role. Now, I always wanted to be a crewman, so that's kind of what I was always going for. Um, and uh, things like the air traffic kind of tests were very much that, you know, if you did really well in remembering the numbers and the sequences of numbers and things like that, they were the people that obviously went in air traffic. And then a lot of the reaction stuff was all the fast jet kind of boys. So anyone who wanted to be a pilot, you know, had to do well in those particular aptitude tests. But I actually got the aptitude for navigator. 
but my arms were two centimeters too short or something oh, like that. No. But it was hilarious. I didn't actually want to be a navigator anyway. I only ever wanted <laughs> yeah. to be a crewman. So it was kind of irrelevant. But yeah, so that and then at the end of that, then you get accepted to come in as or whatever trade you're going for. Awesome stuff. And can you tell our viewers what the role of a crewman is? Yeah, so a crewman is essentially the shop floor of the helicopter. So all the the Air Force helicopters that we have, we um we've got less now than whenever I joined. Whenever I joined, which was two thousand and one, uh, we had Chinooks, we had Search and Rescue Fleet of Sea Kings, uh, we had Pumas, and eventually we got the Merlin in not too long after I joined. Um, so on each helicopter, you've got two pilots up the front, and then it's the crewmen who work down the back. So. Our job is to look after anything that comes inside the helicopter, um, any of the internal loads, um, and that includes troops or certainly in a Chinook, anything from like a Landover to a 105 gun you can fit inside a Chinook. Um, so anything that comes inside, we're in charge of. Uh, and then anything that doesn't fit inside, you can put underneath on some of the underslung load drops. So we're in charge of kind of making sure whatever's going to go underneath is within the CFG limits of the aircraft. And we have to work out all the CFG loading limits and, and facts and figures for the pilot. Um, we do a lot of the aircraft maintenance whenever we're landed away from base, so we're all um, engineer qualified engineers as well. Wow. Not to the not to the same level as the actual engineers, but we can certainly do before flights and after flights. Uh, we do a lot of the navigation now, especially with the the moving maps that we've got in the cabin, um, and a lot of the radios whenever we're out in Operic, um and sort of Iraq and Afghanistan. We do yeah, a lot of the radios. Um, and and we man the weapons, which is probably one of the best bits. So uh, <laughs> obviously not here in the UK, but certainly when we're away, yeah, it's our, our job to defend the aircraft. Wow, a lot to take on board there. So yeah, let's go through your ground training and flying training. Where does it start? Because there's a, it seems like there's a lot of roles there. Like, can you talk us through that for our viewers? Yeah. So uh, whenever you first, whenever I first joined, so the day I tested, that was basic training. So you do three months of like running around with a pine pole and doing lots of leadership tests and um, all your fitness and kind of learning how to march and the very, very basic stuff of how to be a person in the forces. So going from, you know, normal civvy street to suddenly knowing what a, what a rank is and what an officer looks like and, and all those kind of things and how to iron your shirt, all the usual basic training stuff. So we did three months of that and then at Cranwell we stay on and we do what is called basic ground school for loadmasters or crewmen. And that is all the kind of learning about the air law and learning about the rules of the air, a little bit about navigation and how to read maps and those kind of things. Yeah, a little bit about radios as well. And then at the end of that, you get to pick, well, they give you a dream sheet. And the dream sheet essentially is where you can put on your dream sheet whether or not you want to go to helicopters or to fixed wing. Um, and at the time, whenever I joined, the fixed wing fleet had the old BC-10s, which are out of service now, and Tri-Stars, which are also out of service, <laughs> um, and the Hercules. So a few people put fixed wing and they got siphoned off towards fixed wing. And again, it's service need really. So some people um, who wanted to go helicopters went fixed wing or vice versa. It really just depends on where the postings are at the time. Um, and then depending on where you go, I obviously picked helicopters and got helicopters. So I went on to do uh, RAF Shawbury, uh, which is up in Shropshire. And that was essentially the first time that you set foot in an aircraft. So we flew on the Griffin helicopter there which is a, a little twin engine, kind of small little helicopter, a little bit like the Huey that they flew in Vietnam. Um, and we learned then how to essentially operate as a crew. Um, we used to have a bit of a running joke that as soon as the rotor blades started turning, it would suck your brain out because you can practice <laughs> everything on the ground. But as soon as you get in the air, yeah. you kind of forget everything. Um, and that was it, nearly a year, actually, at Shawbury, about nine months. And then at the end of that, you get another dream sheet and you get to pick what helicopter you want to go on. 
a little bit like before it's kind of service needs so depending on who needs the most crewmen but I was really lucky again and got my choice of Chinooks so went to the the, uh, the front line and do another six months of learning how to operate the Chinook which is obviously quite a big helicopter <laughs> so oh, yeah. there's a lot more to learn um, and then you get you get put onto a squadron so yeah so it's, it ramps up slowly you know it's all kind of baby steps as you go through you're not suddenly you know a week into the air force and expected to be in the front line or anything like that absolutely and i don't want to push this point too much but was there any stigma of you going through as a female or a woman uh, at the time going through your training and going on to you know the chinook force yeah no they're not really so i was there was only three females on my basic training i mean we were always in the minority um and uh, two of us went to helicopters and one of the girls went fixed wing and then whenever i got to chinooks i was the only female so and i was the only female crewman on chinooks for about four years not the first might i add certainly not the last there's a few of them there now but um i was the only one for about four years and it to be honest it was like having 80 big brothers on the squadron uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know it, they were always brilliant and even through all my training everyone wants everyone to succeed together there's a real team ethos around the forces and that really comes across from like day one so it was never ever made to feel like you know a weaker species or or even over applauded for being a woman it's like well you know she can do this despite the fact she's a woman yeah. you were just one of the lads so yeah, yeah. Really good. So, yeah. yeah what was your first squadron and did you have a favorite mission or role the Chinook performed on that squadron so my very first squadron was 27 squadron. And the reason why I picked 27 squadron, again, at the end of the OCF, which is like the Chinook school, you get to pick which squadron you want to go on and providing their space, you'll you'll head wherever you ask. Um, and the only reason I wanted to go 27 really at the time, because both squadrons are identical, is that the, the school was attached to 18 squadron. And I thought, like any kid, I want to get away from all the instructors. <laughs> so I was like, I'll go over to the other squadron. Yeah. So um, yeah, my first squadron was 27. And uh, it was it was brilliant. You know, it was I wouldn't say there was a specific role at the time um, because it was just so varied. But whenever you get to your first squad and you still have essentially your L plates on, you're still learning. So you have to work up to get combat ready. And that's where I, I spent my time on 27 squadron working up to get combat ready. And it's also where I did my very first, uh, I did my Falklands, was my first ever deployment. And then, or detachment, I guess you can call it. And then went to Iraq and I was in Iraq at 21. So 27 squadron kind of held my hand through those journeys. Yeah, and we're going to get onto your time in combat. But uh, did you like work with... Other services, the RAF, uh, not, uh, sorry, the Army, the Navy, or even other Air Forces, why, uh, why you're on your first squadron with on 27? Yeah, absolutely. So um, back in the day, I sound really old when I say that, <laughs> but we used to do um, a, like a joint exercise every January up in Scotland out of Lossie and Kinloss. And we would get, it was basically essentially like fighter, uh, fighter fill. And we do a lot of stuff with the fast jets where we would try and um, sort of, evade them in the weeds as they flew above us but um yeah that was with various air forces from around the world used to come and join in with that um and then uh yeah in terms of working with the navy and the army well the chinook is essentially the battlefield helicopter that the army used for everything yeah. so we would move most of the army troops like nearly every time we were tasking it was always army guys that we were moving really um, a little bit of RAF regiment as well, but mostly, you know, British soldiers from the army. Um, and then on some of the exercises, yeah, we go and work with the Moroccans. We did a couple of um, training exercises over Morocco and Germany. So, yeah, it was really good. You know, we get to kind of go around the world and, and see how each every, and every different force does it. 
Mm-hmm. So did you have a favourite place to fly in the UK? Yeah, probably. I have to say um, London Hellions. So we were very lucky whenever we used to do the gunnery sorties, which are the ranges for the gunnery sorties are up on the East Coast, um, just off the East Coast of Norfolk, really, and Lincolnshire. And uh, at the end of one of those days, we'd always come back through London. So you'd kind of arrived east of London and then we'd come home through the heli lanes, which essentially run up. There's, there's various heli lanes that run through London, but we'd always go along H3, which is the one that runs along the Thames and uh, and then pop out to the west of London and back home to Odium, which is along the M3. And uh, doing that, sitting on the ramp with your feet dangling out over the edge of the ramp, watching watching all the landmarks go past was definitely a favourite favorite sortie. And beating the traffic, of course. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the thing. On a Friday night, you could see the M25 essentially filling up like a like a big lasso around London because it just glowed orange as it started to fill up. So, uh, yeah, it was always nice flying over that and beating the traffic. And just a side question here, Liz. Uh, Were you allowed to take a camera on them shots over London or was it prohibited from the RAF? No, no, absolutely. So um, certainly in the early days, you know, we used to fly around and because everything was quite new, really, for me back in the younger days. So I used to always have a, and that was before we had a lot of these snazzy phone cameras. So it was, you know, just having a camera in your go bag on, on the aircraft. Um, not so much whenever we went to Iraq and Afghanistan, Iraq a little bit. But when we got to Afghanistan, we weren't allowed to take phones. So you had to leave your phone here in the UK. So a lot of people didn't take as many pictures and certainly because it's a war zone and, and actually you were pretty busy doing your job, there was a little bit less time for, I guess, you know, battlefield photography. There's probably hundreds of troops out there with pictures of me, but I've not got a picture of me at work. <laughs> <laughs> It'll pop up somewhere now you're a famous author. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Liz, so let's get on to your time in Iraq. And I think you were the youngest crew meant to deploy. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. So I went at 21. Uh, youngest air crew to go out there and I was still limited combat ready which was quite unique um, and it wasn't the war fighting so Iraq the war kind of happened while I was still at Shawbury the actual invasion of Baghdad and then by the time I got into the squadron and deployed to Iraq it was what was called framework tasking essentially all the British troops were still there but all we were doing is moving them around the kind of area and holding what was called then Immediate Response Team, or IRT, which then became the Medical Emergency Response Team, or MERT, when we got to Afghanistan. It's the same thing, it just got renamed. Um, But yeah, so um, pretty young, went out there as a limited combat ready. So actually my Iraq medal, my Iraq medal has um, Air Crew Cadet written on the side of it, which is really, really unique because we didn't have our substantive rank until you get combat ready. So I wasn't even a, a substantive sergeant then. So <laughs> there's two people have got that on their medal, me and, me and one of my mates, and that's it in the whole that's world. That's definitely a keeper then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how did you personally get prepared to, you know, go over to an actual war zone? So um, the squad were really good. We do pre-deployment training before we go. So we learn all the things about, you know, how to shoot our rifles and, and how to run around in a battlefield, et cetera, et cetera. But in terms of personal prep, I think it was just for me, kind of getting ready to, I guess, you know, say goodbye to my mom and dad and things like that and down the phone because the, the, you only got 20 minutes a week to call home wow. um, from Iraq, which, uh, yeah, wasn't a lot. <laughs> and it went really quickly. Yeah. Um, and at the time, we remember that prisoners in the UK got 30-minute phone calls a week and we got 20 minutes. I was like, that doesn't really make sense, does it? No. Um, but yeah, and also before you you go to any war zone, you have to write your will. And writing a will when you're only 21 was quite a sobering kind of experience. 
So yeah. and that gets left behind in the squadron with all your next of kin details. So yeah, it's a bit of a steep learning curve, really. Yeah, how did the family take that? Because yeah, it's it's a big it's it's a big thing to take on. You're writing a will at twenty one. It's it's crazy. How did your family take it? Were they just proud of you, or did you just kind of think, or did they think just like go on, pet, go and get on with it? Yeah, so it's funny because I think Iraq at the time wasn't in the news as much as no. certainly Afghanistan became. Iraq at the time was still. Um, you know, it was it was on news, but it wasn't the BBC, you know, every night, you know, shock and awe of like yeah. casualties coming out in the back of Chinooks. So I think mum and dad obviously knew it was slightly dangerous, but because, I mean, they hadn't seen it in the press quite so much, they weren't as worried, I don't think, or certainly they hit it quite well. Um, and I, because I didn't want to over-worry them, was quite like lacking in, in passing on information of what we were doing. So I think they essentially thought I was just, the flying the post around in Afghanistan or in Iraq and <laughs> and delivering water to the troops and not doing anything particularly tasty. And truth is, Iraq was quite benign. It was a lot more benign than Afghanistan. Yeah, and we're going to get into Afghanistan. But yeah, can you tell us what their living conditions were like over there for you and as a crew? Yeah, so we had what was called Tent City in Basra. We were basically, the main body of the Chinook fleet were based out of Basra. And then we had... Uh, another aircraft stationed um, halfway up the country between Basra and Baghdad at a place called Alamara. Mm -hmm. And Alamara was just basically an outpost for the British forces. And um, and that's where we held the IRT from, the immediate response team, which is the flying ambulance. So we had one crew living there with the medics and an air aircraft and the rest of the crews, they say, were back in Basra. And it was uh, Tent City, which is essentially these big C-span tents. And you would go in through the main corridor of the tent and then off the the main corridor, there was about five or six rooms as you went along on either side with about eight or nine beds in each room. And you would basically have a little cot bed with a little mosquito net that went around it like a pod. And that was your that was your space. So, yeah, set of hanging drawers to put all your T-shirts and socks and pants and, and uh, whatnot in. And, and that was it. You know, pretty basic, but it's amazing how quickly you can make anything feel like home. Absolutely. And yeah. could you tell us, uh, maybe, or maybe share with our viewers, some memorable stories from your time in Iraq? Flying, obviously, would be the most uh, interesting for our viewers. Yeah, yeah. So um, one of the main things we did in Iraq, as well as um, moving a lot of the troops around, was Eagle VCPs. And Eagle VCPs, it, it's a term that was actually mainly used in Northern Ireland back in the day, which is where a helicopter would land on a road, all the troops would run out the back, and they would then patrol the road or stop some vehicles, known vehicles, or search for weapons, that right. kind of thing. So we would do a lot of that in Iraq, and we would go and land on some of the main highways. The RAF regiment, it was at the time, would run out the back, and they would then search some of the vehicles and, and look for weapon caches, essentially, or anyone who's up to bad things. Um, but it meant that we had usually like 15 minutes, maybe half an hour to fill in the air while they were doing that. So we would just have to go off and... Uh, and make use of our time. So that generally became stunts and, and having a laugh and kind of learning how to fly the Chinook um, on, a, on a pin, really. So uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the Chinook display. It's oh, doing yeah. the lines at the, uh, the air shows. So a lot of the manoeuvres that you see the Chinook display doing, you know, those are the kind of things we would be practising in, in our 30 minutes of, of playing around. So essentially just pirouetting around the sky and, and learning how to quick stop. And a quick stop is a thing where you essentially bring the aircraft, just what it says in the tin really, to a really, really quick stop. So you basically pull the nose up and arrest all the speed very quickly. So you can land next to the troops if you spot them late. So that's what kind of practice that maneuver for. Yeah. 
And sometimes we have to do a wing over, which is essentially we have to turn the whole aircraft 180 and then do the same thing, a quick stop. So we practice all those kind of things. And a thing called a gourney, which is essentially where you corkscrew out of the sky or up through the sky, wow. which the Chinook display does. Um, but yeah, so we have a lot of fun doing all that. But the best thing that we used to do was a thing called bunting. And bunting is where the pilot essentially climbs the aircraft and then drops the lever. So the whole aircraft becomes weightless. So you essentially become an astronaut for a couple of minutes. Oh, <laughs> and uh, we, uh, I mean, we've had crewmen who have managed to make it the whole length of the cabin, like Superman, because no you essentially are completely weightless. Yeah. Wow. Um, we always warn that if we've got any troops on board, warn them we're about to do it because they either want to tighten their seatbelts or some of them just loosen them off and they lift up off the seats and kind of hover in the air. Um, but I remember doing a, a bunt and uh, looking out into the six o'clock of the aircraft and off the back of the ramp, all of the rounds from the M60 that we had fitted were like hovering out in the airflow <laughs> as they had got weightless wow. and decided to depart the gun. So I very carefully had to fish them all back in, <laughs> hoping wow. that the the the, uh, the band of uh, of rounds didn't break and I didn't lose any over the ramp, which would have been pretty ba pretty bad news for me. So uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. But it was it was great fun. The engineers used to hate it because we'd land on and they'd open up the all the cowlings on the aft pylon and there would just be oil everywhere. Because obviously that all gets weightless as well. So that used to come out of all the sumps. Um, and they'd always say, have you guys been bunting? And we'd be like, uh, yeah. no, don't know what you mean. <laughs> Just turbulence. <laughs> so uh, yeah, bunting is quite good fun. Absolutely. And how did you work as a crew as well? Would you all speak to each other? Like who was in charge? I'm guessing it was the captain of the aircraft. But were you all speaking to each other? Or did you have one role and you just got on with it? Yeah, so we would generally fly, when, certainly when you're in Iraq and Afghanistan, would be constituted crews. So you'd stay with the same four of you for at least a couple of weeks, maybe four weeks, maybe six. Sometimes the whole deployment, which was three wow. months. And uh, which is great if you get on with everyone. <laughs> Not too great if you've got someone in your crew. But I have to admit, that generally didn't really happen. I was really lucky. Um, and I pretty much got on with most of the Chinook fleet. So I was, I mean, they're all, they're all we all have a love of the aircraft. So we're all very like-minded people. Um but yes, you would live as a crew, you know, you would hold all your duties as a crew. And then whenever you went out for a tasking day, you all put your helmets on, plug in the intercom, and you essentially just all plugged in on the same net on the intercom. Right. So, and that's a skill that we learned at Shawbury. So one of the things that's kind of really important in the helicopter world is this thing called crew resource management. And that's essentially where, and certainly as you're going through Shawbury, it took the pilots quite a long time to kind of, recognize this skill or practice it because they were so used to flying as a solo pilot in their own little helicopter that they would try and do everything themselves even though you've now got a crew of four people so the whole idea of crew resource management is saying okay crewman you've got the navigation getting the co-pilot to do the radios getting somebody else to clear the aircraft tail into a clearing or into a landing site and and getting everyone in the in the crew to have a job so that you're not maxed out trying to do it yourself yeah. which it sounds really simple, but it's actually, if you're so used to having to do everything yourself, you, you, you just naturally kind of fall into that pattern. So that's something we had to learn. So essentially, whenever we get to Iraq, or Iraq and your crew as a crew of four, we all, by the end of the deployment, you're all, it's like a well-oiled machine because we all yeah. know what each other's doing all the time. Sometimes I have to speak. Yeah. No, it's really good. So how long did you spend in Iraq? And uh, maybe enjoy is not the right word, obviously, here, but uh, what did you take away from the experience of being in Iraq when you returned to the UK? So one of my lasting memories from Iraq was there was a Puma crash whenever I was there, actually. A Puma um, mm. came in to land and um, it basically crashed on the runway at Basra. 
And one of our crews were, were holding the response at the time, so flew the crew. One of the pilot died, uh, and our crew flew the other two um, injured crew to um, to Shiber Hospital, which was about a fifty minute flight time from Basra. And mm. um, whenever that our our crew got back and they shut down, I mean they, they said to all of us because we were obviously asking how they were, and they said that they could hear the pilot and the crewman screaming over the sound of the intercom with their burns injuries and that really struck me quite hard because I remember thinking you know it, that wasn't enemy fire that was just the ground the ground's got a, peak, a probable kill of one you know if you have yeah. a bad landing in a helicopter it goes wrong very quickly yeah. um, so that was the first time I'd seen somebody doing my job die and also seeing the kind of effects of what a helicopter crash can look like and it was pretty yeah. pretty bad so that was kind of one of the things that I took away from Iraq really um, and yeah it was that was sort of I think something I carried with me for the rest of my career, it's sort of, yeah. you don't leave many room, like not room for margin margin of error, if you know what I mean, you have to make sure you get it right all the time. Yeah, so like, like kicks it into home kind of thing, like, okay, yeah, this is serious kind of thing I yeah. must have done, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, obviously you also flew, I think you won 10 deployments in Afghan, is that correct, Liz? Yeah, so I did two to Iraq, and then they in 2005, the Chinook force pulled out of Iraq and turned their eyes towards Afghanistan, and I ended up doing 10 deployments to Afghanistan by the end of it. So yeah, it felt like home. <laughs> <laughs> Back there. So yeah, for our viewers who maybe are not up to speed on the mission, what was the original mission in Afghan for the RAF and the Brits in general? So I think originally we went in, um, it all fell out really from the Twin Towers. So essentially the Twin Towers happened um, and Afghanistan were seen to be shielding Taliban, um, who'd be, well, Al-Qaeda, who'd been involved in the, the, the attacks. And essentially the Americans went in first and wherever the Americans go, we kind of follow. Um, but it very soon became sort of poppy eradication because the poppy crops in Afghanistan were essentially funding the, well, creating the drugs that were leading straight to the streets of the UK. So that very quickly became the mission of the British troops was to eradicate the poppy fields. Um, And that's where things started to get quite kinetic because the poppy fields in Afghanistan are essentially what keeps a lot of the Afghan community going. I mean, that's their main source of income. So we basically went in and started a hornet's nest and things got pretty messy pretty quickly. Yeah. So did you know when, obviously, things were starting to kick off, did you know you were going to be deployed out there on the Chinook? So I didn't, um, whenever, certainly when I joined, I mean, I joined a week before, uh, sorry, a week after the Twin Tower attack. And I remember watching it on the news back home in Northern Ireland in the cafe that I worked in. And the day that this, that happened, I think my uh, a colleague at work at the cafe elbowed me and said, Liz, you're joining the Air Force in a week. She went, you're going to be busy. And I knew that I'd probably end up, at, you know, in a battle zone somewhere, but not yeah. necessarily in Afghanistan. I sort of knew that Iraq was already bubbling around in the background, but I didn't see myself going to, to Afghanistan at that point. But um, yeah, and, and it sort of, it kind of jumped up on us pretty quickly, I think. Mm-hmm. And how did you feel about, uh, you know, being uh, deployed to go over there? Were you up for it or were you a bit nervous and anxious? No, I was actually, I mean, I joined the Air Force to do a job and being at war is the best you can do that, really. You know, it's your best sense of purpose. And I always refer to it as kind of a normality bar that I was, you know, as I went through my career in that Iraq was quite quiet for me, certainly, uh, for my time there. No, it wasn't for everyone, you know, certainly at the war fighting um deployments were pretty tasty for a few people 
And whenever the Chinook force pulled out of Basra, Basra started getting IDF, so indirect fire, nearly every day. And, and actually one RAF regiment guy got killed. Mm-hmm. So it was definitely not a benign theatre, but it was just quite benign when I was there. So I remember going into landing sites there and they had been mortared like a week before. So we'd go into somewhere like Basra Palace or the Shatla Arab Hotel, which is along the river in, in Basra. And it had been mortared like a week before. I'm thinking... God, that's quite dangerous. This place was like murdered <laughs> last week. And then the next time you'd go in, it had been murdered like two days before or something. And you'd be like, oh, two days ago. So it kind of got, the danger got a little bit closer, but it became nice. a bit more normal. And then the same in Afghanistan. In the early days in Afghanistan, because there were so few British boots on the ground, really, we only had, I mean, Bastion didn't even exist when we first arrived in Afghanistan. So we kind of underslung a lot of the stuff out there to kind of build Bastion up out of the ground. But there was only British troops, Bastion, um, Lashkagar, which is quite near Bastion, um, Goresh, which is another base quite close, and Sangin, which is at the base of the Helmand Valley, um, and a, a tiny few troops at Kajaki, which is the north of the Helmand Valley, but not really that many British troops on the ground. So in terms of kineticness and sort of, you know, troops getting contacted every day, it was quite, quite quiet. So again, my normality bar was, you know, we'd go into some of the sites and they'd been mortared that morning or rocketed that morning, or the troops had been in contact that morning. And then as things started to get tastier and tastier in Afghanistan, it would be the troops are in contact. OK, contact's clear. Go in and we go in and land, uh, certainly for things like the merch site where we had to go and get casualties. And then the next thing you'd be going in and you were the, the landing site was in, in under contact, but you had to go in to get the casualty. So you'd be going in while being contacted or rocketed while you're on the landing site. So it, it but it became really normal. You know, that that danger getting closer, you suddenly became really immune to it because you wow. kind of built it up so slowly yeah. so and you didn't really have an option i mean if someone's dying on the on the battlefield you're never going to turn around and say no we're not going in to get them you know there's not a single chinook member would have ever said that not a single crew we all would have gone and just you know take the risk because you've got to get the casualty out yeah absolutely and that's like, i'm sure like that's a way for like many forces but there must have been some sort of like nerves in your head like oh god this is this could be bad or this is going to happen or was it just like right this is the this is a job we're just going to go for it that's it really your right. training just kicks in and you just you get so mission focused really and i mean a few people over the years have said oh you're so brave and the truth is like getting shot at is a lot like getting, nearly getting hit by a car when you cross the road nine times out of ten it's already just happened before you know what's happened. And a lot of the time in Afghanistan, because the Chinook's so noisy, you wouldn't even know if you were under contact a lot of the time, unless you could see the rounds kicking up the dust around the aircraft, or you could hear the very kind of light ting, 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 as the rounds went in. But that meant it was somewhere quite close to you. So I've had a couple of times, I've had one round that went right in above my head, actually, about a foot above my head. Um, and the engineers dug out for me when we got back and landed on, and they obviously had to do the battle assessment on the aircraft. And um, and found the round and gave it to me. <laughs> and I had another one a couple of years later, a triple A, which is a high caliber round. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it came up under the ballistic panel beneath my feet, and the ballistic panel caught the round. So um, I've got that one as well. <laughs> so I've got two in my bedside drawer that uh, nearly missed me. But um, but yeah, nine times out of ten, you actually don't really know you're being shot at until you come back, land on, and you do your after-flight walk round, and you find holes everywhere <laughs> in the aircraft. But um, and yeah, it's not, I wouldn't say it's bravery, but it's, yeah, you get mission focused and that's what you're there to do. And actually we train a lot for it. You know, we do a lot of self-defense flying here in the UK and when we're on exercises and stuff. So, you know, we're pretty good at avoiding bullets most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant stuff. But yeah, like I've, I've 
always like wondered this. Like, so obviously when you're in combat or theatre, do you actually train, or is it just, or is it too dangerous to actually go and train any sort of mission? Yeah, no, certainly in Afghanistan, it's all up flying. So there's a, a pot of hours, essentially, you don't want to burn the hours off the airframe yeah. if they're needed for tasking. And that's really what it's about. So which is why we as air crew only do three months. The British Army, when they deploy, essentially go for six months at a time. So most of the ground units and even a lot of the Air Force would go for six months at a time. But us as air crew would only go for three months. And that was because we had to come back here to the UK to do a lot of our emergency training in the sim our instrument flying currency so practicing yeah. flying in cloud all that kind of thing um and a lot of night flying as well because you did night fly in theater but you it, if it was like normal tasking that kind of thing you weren't necessarily practicing all the really core skills that you need for night flying and night flying safely so we had to do that back here in the uk as well so that's why we went for three months at a time so that we could come back make sure that we were still on our on on the mark and, and on our skill set and then go back out again